Hello, listeners. Welcome to this episode of the Archives and Things podcast. I'm your host, Melissa J. Nelson. In today's episode, I will be speaking with Dr. Mark V. Campbell about his initiative, Northside Hip Hop Archive. I first connected with Mark at the Association of Canadian Archivists Annual Conference in June 2021. I moderated the plenary panel, Black Archives Matter, in which Mark was a panelist, along with Dr. Cheryl Thompson and Katrina Vernon. Dr. Mark V. Campbell is a DJ and curator, as well as the founder of Northside Hip Hop Archive, Canada's first national hip hop archive. Mark is an assistant professor of music and culture at the University of Toronto Scarborough and a former Banting postdoctoral fellow at the University of Regina's Department of Fine Arts. His research interests include digital archiving, Afro-diasporic theory and culture, Canadian hip hop cultures, DJ culture, and Afrosonic innovations. Mark has published widely with essays appearing in Southern Journal of Canadian Studies, Critical Studies in Improvisation, Souls, a Critical Journal of Black Politics, Culture and Society, and the CLR James Journal. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Melissa, for inviting me to be on this podcast. Absolutely. All right, let's get right into the conversation. Can you tell me a bit about hip hop, music, and culture in Canada and why you started to document and preserve that history? Sure. Um, well, hip hop music in Canada is, it's an interesting case because it's very, very diverse. Uh, it has an interesting relationship to uh, the US market, which is you know the largest uh, hip hop market in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I've occupied a, a position in the culture by, you know, contributing through radio as a DJ for 17 years. Um, so for me, I, I started to document this uh, as I started to see technology was changing things very quickly. So we went from street magazines that would give you album reviews and tell you about concerts uh, to, you know, getting most of your information online. So a lot of uh, our paper-based resource sources by the middle of the 2000s, 2006, 2007, 2008, started disappearing. Mm. Um, and it was very difficult at the time for me to teach in the classroom about the history of Toronto hip hop without uh, primary source documents. That's when I decided I needed to start digitizing at that time in 2009. I had been on radio for about 10 years. Um, and I started accumulating flyers and uh, demo tapes. And, and I said, I need to start digitizing this because it will all disappear as soon as we, you know, blink. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I started it as a, as a teaching tool. But I also started it as a way to celebrate um, people that don't get celebrated in the mainstream media. Um, and Canada, you know, being next to... Um, the kind of media imperialism that the United States propagates globally means that you know we're not all we're, we're not seeing ourselves often as a hip hop community or hip hop culture that's so uniquely Canadian, and it that translates uh, into you know what gets seen gets kept and preserved right and so if if we're not seeing images of ourselves as Canadians in in hip hop culture that stuff also does not end up in our archives and in our collections so. I thought it was critical to to start that because I was in such a unique position. Mm -hmm. 
And you spoke briefly about some of the materials that you collect. And so I'm interested in learning more about that. So I saw on your website that um, it says that Northside Hip Hop Archive envisions itself as an archive and a counter archive. Can you explain how your archive challenges traditional um, definitions of what can be deemed archival? Oh, for sure. Um, you know, it, it's first of all, it, it seems it might seem odd to people in in uh, the United States that a country as small as Canada has a, a, an archive um, because most people outside of the country couldn't, you know, name um, 10 different artists from 10 different provinces. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I, what I wanted to do was focus not so much on the the individual and the heroic winner, the king or the dragon slayer or whoever sort of we believe is the winner in history, but really wanted to focus more on groups uh, like radio shows, um, breakdance crews um, and festivals, you know, places where success could not be defined by one person right and there wasn't some individualistic hero that's you know um was the brightest and the best it was more about how, how did these folks create community together how did these people contribute to hip-hop together um, some of the longest running radio shows in canada more than 30 years old they take generations and generations of volunteer labor right mm -hmm. and it's not just one dj it's, it's four five six djs it's their you know, um, their apprentices, the people they mentor over 30 years, it's a lot of it's a lot of contribution. So, you know, I wanted to counter some of those notions that uh, the individual supersedes the community. Um, and in another way, you know, the, the, the other countering part was to to balance sort of the public events with um, as much material documentation as possible so that um, people can make use of the information you know, um, by coming to events, by being at exhibitions, by sitting on panels um, and seeing the work that's in the archive and being able to make use of it in, in uh, you know, in whatever creative endeavors come next. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about your approach to archiving these types of materials. Um, as you know, current approaches to cataloging are based on colonial ways of knowing and documenting. So how can we rethink the archival catalog and how can that be informed by hip hop culture and artistic practices? Um, you're right. The current, current approaches to cataloging are totally colonial. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the last, I think I didn't start writing about hip hop archives until about 2012 or something like that or 2014. Um, and I had been, you know, I had been archiving since 2010 or, or, and I think part of the one way to think about how hip hop can influence archival collections and, and methodologies is to think about um, hip hop as this kind of multi-sensory, multidisciplinary entity where there are always nodes of relations that need to be honored, right? So if you come from a particular community, you have to rep your community. You have to honor the folks that protected you, the folks that mentored you, the folks that put you on stage. Um, and I think that sensibility in hip hop, not just like rep my hood, but also like honor those that helped me, those that paved the way, respect the architects, that kind of thinking. I think that can inform how we think about cataloging and the, and, and the rigidity of some categorizations and who makes those categories. Because in, in many ways, mm -hmm. Um, you know, hip hop has existing 
structures to organize information. Mm. And a DJ organizes their records very differently than a turntablist. And both of those organizational methodologies should somehow influence how you how you think about hip hop. Mm-hmm. Right. Same thing with dancers or or graffiti artists. They have, you know, they have metrics of success that might influence how you how you organize the information. You know, it might not just be the winners of battles. It might be, you know, the crews that had the most amount of mentors or the crews that had the most amount of women or the crews that traveled the most. They have their own metrics of success that I think should influence how we we try to catalog these histories. Mm-hmm. So you think that the language that's used, the categories, the structure should be coming from the communities that are represented in these records? Yeah, yeah. Abs- absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it's a difficult task. It's a, almost an impossible task to ask yeah. of an archivist, yeah. um, but it, it, it doesn't have to be a task of an archivist. It should be a task of a community you know, and people working together um, to come up with structures and ideas that really resonate with the community. Mm -hmm. So that when you're looking, for example, if you're looking for a particular DJ, you know, a traditional archive might want to catalog them by their government name, when really nobody knows that person by their government name. That's a good point. You know, um, Mm -hmm. and they might only know them by their DJ name. And like, those are just small things. But I'm sure if we were to look across all of the elements of hip hop, and I, you know, I'll always go back to DJing because it's my, it, you know, it's where I've spent the most time. Um, I think if we if we spend the time with the community and with the folks who are being archived, they'll come up with some innovative ways so that they don't feel alienated when they're going through these data sets, and and that they and that there's some sort of joint ownership, you know, around how peaks people are being represented, especially if you know if those people aren't around anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering if you could share some insight on your process for working with communities to grow and promote your collection. Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the process, you know, um, the process matures as I age, because when I started in 2009, um, it was really about like, individuals coming to me and offering items you know Mm -hmm. to be an exhibition so my very first exhibition people brought items into the art gallery and we hung historical artifacts and we had some original art that was commissioned um but none of it was within my collection you know i wasn't collecting these things i was asking people to exhibit them together so that kind of collaboration Mm -hmm. was how things started um, and because we can't put up a new exhibition every single year, <laughs> we have to find other ways of collaborating with folks. So so for me, um, the process of working with folks is about building rapport and creating opportunities for them to see themselves in the process. So sometimes those opportunities are narrating the exhibition on the wall, mm. which we've done before, or sometimes it's getting on stage with your mentor and having a facilitated performance or conversation. Um and then building building from there and let let letting people decide how do I want to contribute to the archive if at all so that part of our work together is me digitizing and creating structures for their information to be slotted into the archive but also being cognizant that the archive isn't taking things away from people right you know, and making sure that people still feel ownership um, and that they've been part of the process in deciding what gets represented 
you know, mm-hmm. um, from their legacies and from their, you know, their communities that, you know, uh, I'm not some uh, not a part of. So what's really interesting about trying to archive hip hop culture is that hip hop is hyper local. You know, mm-hmm. when you represent your neighborhood in your area, it doesn't matter that I'm from Scarborough. If I end up in, in Halifax, you know, if I'm at Uniac Square, no matter who knows me in Scarborough and who knows me in my community, that doesn't translate into another space, right? So you have to build relationships in every place that you go and honor the spaces and, and the existing relationships there. And that's a that's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Do you try to build relationships with existing artists and get digital copies of their personal collections or anything along those lines? Um I do I do cultivate collections so so because I was on radio for so long there were so many people in my network that I would regularly see and they would know what I'm doing uh, and they would offer items um it's only since maybe since the pandemic that people have been coming up and and saying hey we want to donate something to the archive and and you know um depending on on bandwidth we're like yes yes and or this would be the right time etc um so you know i do more promoting of archiving as a practice mm-hmm. um than i do of promoting the items that are collected so you know it's it, it for me the balance as the real the real behavioral change and the transformation we want to see is that people are taking ownership over preservation practices um and working uh, collaboratively with, you know, existing institutions and organizations um, to preserve, you know, what they deem important from, you know, their hip hop past. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, so, you know, the engagement and the collaboration and the building of relations is usually starts out with how can Northside hip hop contribute to your, you know, to your uh, artistic career. Mm-hmm. Right. So currently, we have an exhibition that's touring that started out in Ottawa called Still Though. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's an exhibition that, that looks at the, the preservation of graffiti and the evolution of graffiti culture and street street art, uh, what, what gets called street art today. Um, and every city that we go to, it is about figuring out who are the OGs in that city? Who are the kids that are getting up on the walls right now? How do we create an opportunity for them to be, participate uh, with Northside Hip Hop in this show. So it will travel to Montreal and Halifax and um, a couple other cities. And the whole idea is not about, can I can we digitize your collection? But it's more about how do we create an opportunity together? And when, uh, if you like what we do, or if you feel like this, uh, in the endeavor, the Northside Hip Hop Archive endeavor is, is a worthwhile endeavor, then people will, will contribute items. Um, and that's really how we, we, what we rely on it as the practice, you know, so that it's not extractive and it's based on a, a relationship that we build together. Yeah, that's so important. Absolutely. Do you ever have um, researchers or artists that approach you that are interested in the in your collection and using it to support their art or their research? Um, more researchers now. There's always folks that, that approach. Right now, it's mainly um, film houses. TV shows, so we're lending a lot of items out. Like uh, the Junos did something to celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop in March. Oh, um, that's awesome! We, yeah, we lent some 
some images out for that, etc. But the it it really is about for for us going forward. You know, it's about how do we how do we stimulate the creation of new art? Mm-hmm. How do we get people interested in hip hop's past? Um, not just for research purposes, but for for finding a way of creating new art that engages the public. Mm-hmm. I saw on your website that you created some lesson plans. Could you tell me more about that and the relationships that you've developed with different schools? Sure. Um, this is also a good question because we've we've been we worked on a set. Um, with my curriculum developers, I got to shout out uh, Judy McEwen and Kolsum Anwar. We all went to Teachers College together 20 years ago. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do with the archive was to, was to create teacher guides so that it's usable for educators. We focused on five subjects in grade 10, LART, and it's based on the Ontario curriculum. Um, now we focus on five subjects because in grade 10 we find that that's the the age or the grade that young people decide whether or not school is for them right so the highest dropout rate is in grade 10. Mm. Um, so what we created was we created what what's called black line masters right you can print off and photocopy and walk into the class and use these things and some of the activities, for example, we'll look at the Dream Warriors and the comic book about, you know, looking at the style of, of drawing uh, in that comic book, analyzing lyrics from Maestro Fresh West. Um, I have an interview about uh, some a visual art exhibition that we did in 2013 in one of the in one of. So the whole idea was how do we make the entire archive usable for high school students? in chunks, right? And have it relate back to all the curriculum, Ontario curriculum expectations, so that there's no excuse for a teacher to not use the archive. You know, uh, anyone that's teaching grade 10, and you know, if you're teaching grade 11, 12, they can always modify these things on the fly. But it's always, it's about creating the opportunity to make this a learning a learning space. Um, and and I think we have, we actually have some curriculum coming out shortly uh, for, for the fall that's based on um, francophone Ontario hip hoppers and francophone hip hoppers in Canada. That's awesome. But it's not aligned with the Quebec curriculum just yet. So we're going to work, figure that piece out because I don't know if anyone will use it in Quebec if it's Ontario curriculum guidelines, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because when I first heard about your archive, I thought it was just very specific to the Black community, but I noticed that you have some collections from individuals that are in other communities as well. So hearing yeah. about the collections that you have on Francophone Canadians, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is, I mean, one of the areas we need to work on is is Francophone hip hop, which is a huge, huge market in Quebec, but it's almost impenetrable from Ontario to like get the new music that's, you know, you can get on the internet now, but when we started, it was, you know, still, unless you know French, it's, it, you know, uh, you won't know who's really popping in in Montreal right. otherwise. But um, <clears throat> the whole idea was to uh, demonstrate that the culture moves moves beyond mm-hmm. the the restrictions that our society has placed on us. Mm-hmm. So you know, when it comes to um, the extractive practices that we've learned from colonialism, you know, hip hop from the very beginning you know, was bar what was teaching us a different way of, of and, and a different set of relationships, right? So prior to hip hop being a commercial entity, 
in the 1970s, from 73 to 79, there were, you know, New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, neoliberal logic was was um, becoming more prevalent. And young people that invented hip hop found a way to find to create value outside of the labor market. And they showed other young people around the world the way you dance, the way you wear your hat, the you know the way you you, you pronounce your words. You know, people in your community would be like, "Yo, I like the way you wear your hat. I like the way you dance." That kind of value that was created by hip hop doesn't it doesn't follow the logics of racial hierarchy. It doesn't follow the logics of colonial extraction. It doesn't follow the logics that that we've been trained in in these institutions through schools and churches and police and all this other stuff. It doesn't follow any of those logics. And I I honestly believe that in this fiftieth year that they're celebrating of of hip hop's existence that mm. there's you know you can go to mongolia peru senegal anywhere you go young people are excited about hip-hop because hip-hop has shown them another path another way to create value in a world where people might say because you live in this neighborhood or because your family looks different or because you you don't have a lot of money you're not worth anything and hip-hop really taught all these kids globally that you can create value you just got to have style you mm. know and you can participate, you can create art with your body. Um, and I think once people understand that piece about hip hop, then maybe they'll, they'll be excited about the idea of trying to preserve what is this thing that hip hop created mm-hmm. that got young people excited for 50 years across the globe to dance, to spray paint, mm-hmm. to, you know, to sample their parents' records, all those kinds of things, I think. That's what we're really trying to do with Northside Hip Hop is, is you know, is to capture that that essence, you know, to help people understand that this thing was, it's not just about how many records you sold or how valuable your, you know, your your sneakers are or something like that. It really is about a culture that, a culture of alternatives, a culture where, you know, young racialized people from the Caribbean, largely, but lots of African born African Americans and Puerto Ricans born in America, figured out this trick where, hey, you can get other people to like you if you don't have expensive clothes on. You can make friends if you know how to dance right. You can make friends if you you know, if you can rhyme some words together. And to me, if 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 our preservation efforts are to be successful, someone one day, in the future, we'll walk away from the archive and say, wow, that's what that's what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, not, oh, that's how much music they made or how many concerts they sold out. All of those things will right. probably not matter in 100 years. Right. But what might matter is that, oh, they figured something out, something, a way to not feel, not to not be dehumanized yeah. by, you know, the colonial experience. Yeah, you make a really great point about the value of hip hop and it's not, yeah, it's not it's not about the records that you sell. It's not about the sneakers that you collect, as you said. It's about mm-hmm. the impact that you make on the culture. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And, yeah. and, you know, there are so many places in the world that they don't have big hip hop markets. They don't have MTV. They don't have all of these things. But you'll find kids outside dancing together, beatboxing, mm-hmm. you know, rhyming words together and having fun. Yeah, uh, creates community. And, yeah, it creates community. I mean, you can't, for a lot, you can't you actually can't even be in hip hop unless you like have a mentor, unless you're part of a crew, 
unless mm -hmm. you're learning together or co-learning together, collaborating on learning things together. Like learning to DJ meant, you know, me and my crew had to sit there and figure things out together. We had to watch some videos. We had to try. We had to fail, but we did it together, you know. So um, got to shout out Triple S crew. <laughs> Boys. <laughs> and what are your plans and hopes for Northside Hip Hop Archive moving forward? Um, I guess the plans, I'll say the hopes first, because maybe the hopes will inform the plans. But the hope is that there's a generation, a couple generations of people that re that recognize that they were participating in a phenomenal culture and that there's something of value in that culture to pass along to the future. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my hope is, is that pe as many people as possible that participated in hip hop just take preservation acts seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have to set up their own archive and start a nonprofit and do anything, but just take preservation seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, they like digitizing your cassettes, keeping all of your all of your practice videos from all of your breakdancing sessions. Uh, you know, there are I know there are many people out there in their you know early 50s that cherish some of these memories from the late 80s and 90s. And I just hope that that uh, that Northside hip hop inspires Mm. Uh, folks beyond Canada, but anywhere where there's hip hop to to take preservation seriously, to take mm. collaboration seriously and to, you know, rep the culture. Um, rep the culture in a way that allows it to flourish going forward. Have you ever or would you ever go into the community to teach preservation practices? You know, I would love to do that. Yeah. And I've I've talked to many young people about Northside Hip Hop Archive. But I also feel like I would be, I feel like that's a job for an archivist, for a professional in the field. You know, maybe we do it together, but yeah. I wouldn't want the field of archival studies or information studies to think that, oh, those people are doing that over there. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all got to do it together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, and I in the past, uh, I've worked with librarians. We've done digitizing events, and they bring their expertise to the table. I bring the community and and the the, the assets to the table, and we work together to make it happen. And and you know, it was uh, it worked out well. It worked out well. I think there's a lot of opportunity to work together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that is really important to me. I feel though. That even though I'm an archivist, I still have a lot to learn about actual preservation. I have a lot more experience with description. Mm -hmm. um, but that is something that I would love to do to go into the community and teach people about the value of archiving their work and the value of archival institutions and help them understand how they can preserve their own materials and make them accessible too, because I think that's the other piece that's really important. If yeah. you're preserving these materials, but nobody can see them, you know, you're not sharing the value with, yeah. you know, with everyone else. So I think that that part is also very important. And I think a lot of young people need to see another young person like yourself leading the charge. That's yeah. that's inspiring when you're 15, 16, 17. Yeah. I think I have too many gray hairs to inspire. Right now. <laughs> but you now. 
<laughs> but yeah, I do think about that. And, you know, especially being a, a Black archivist, and there's so few of us, I think we make up 1% of all archivists in Canada, you know, so Black people don't see themselves represented. So I, I definitely am intentional about making myself as visible as possible so that people can see, young Black people can see that there are Black archivists, and this is a potential career path for you. And this work is really important and is relevant to the Black community. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's, 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 it actually is increasing in importance at, at the same speed that technology is increasing with its, you know, datification of everything, with its social media of everything. It's, there's a relationship there between how quickly we need to move to preserve you know, like if you have family photos on film somewhere, that film's going to decompose, you know, and it's going to be so much easier in the next six months to, you know, to have a 200 gigabyte, I don't know, SD card or something like that, where you can do the work quite quickly. So, yeah, there is a bit of urgency um, that I can see on our on my side. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. No problem. Thank you for inviting. And I'm looking forward to to promoting your podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> tell all these young women that I work with and I see in classrooms that this person's doing this, you know, check this out. Because now, you know, with a podcast, it's so easy for me just to share with young people and be like, this is happening, you know, yeah. get involved, figure it out. Yeah. Um, because you know, 18, 19, 20, people are making decisions about their lives and careers. And it's like the more options you see, yeah. you know, the greater likelihood you could have uh, an impact. Yeah, it's a great way to share information. And I like, I like podcasting because it's conversational. It's not just, you know, academic yeah. jargon. And yeah, it's conversational. It has to be, and it's, you know, it's, it's also digestible for non-academics. Yes. Yeah, like if I'm a young person. Our whole conversation, I think, was today was accessible. Yeah, you don't have to. We weren't talking about you know metadata schemes and yeah, you know, <laughs> really difficult things. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. love I love the podcast. Thank you, I appreciate that. All right, and with that, I will say thank you for listening. Join me next time on Archives and Things. Thank you.